Sports car racing is one of the most exciting and unique forms of motorsport. But for someone new to the sport, it can be a bit confusing. From the different classes and series to the types of cars and countless acronyms, there's a lot to keep track of. In this four-part series, we'll break down everything you need to know on the road to sports car racing fandom. Whether you're getting friends and family into the sport for the first time, becoming a new fan yourself, or just need a little refresher, Sports Car 365 is here to help you get up to speed on the current state of international sports car racing. I'm Jonathan Grace, and this is Sports Car 101. By now, you know what sports car racing is all about, and what types of race cars you'll find at a sports car racing event. But what about how the sport operates? What are the general rules? Who can drive? And how does a 24-hour race even work? Let's find out. Sports car racing bears many similarities to other forms of motorsport. Championships are decided over the course of a season, consisting of rounds of racing at different tracks. Regional series will only race within their region. For example, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship only races in North America, whereas global championships like the World Endurance Championship compete at circuits all over the globe. In either case, teams and drivers can expect a variety of interesting and challenging racetracks to compete at every single season. As in any type of racing, the first car to cross the line wins. In sports car racing, the same is true, except for the fact that there often isn't just one winner. Since most series and championships include multiple classes, each class operates as effectively its own race, meaning that a winner is declared in every class at every race. Each race awards points and podium hardware in every class that competed in the event. If a race featured five classes, there will be five different podium ceremonies. While the obvious goal is to win your class, it's most prestigious to win a race overall in the top class, whatever that may be for the event you're in. In the WeatherTech Championship, that's GTP. In the World Endurance Championship, it's Hypercar. Remember though, both LMH and LMDH cars can compete in GTP and Hypercar interchangeably. In SRO events like the Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli, overall winners are found in the top pro class in GT3 machinery. At the end of a race, points are awarded based on finishing order, and those points are then counted towards a championship. Podium finishers, or those in the top three, are awarded trophies, and they participate in a podium ceremony, which usually includes a lot of spraying champagne. Except, of course, when racing in countries where alcohol is outlawed, in which case you'd spray rose water or some other bubbly non-alcoholic drink. Most series and championships feature multiple drivers in each car, meaning that any points awarded to a car in an event are also awarded to each driver in that car. This also means that if your car finishes on the podium, you get to participate in the podium festivities even if you weren't physically in the car when it crossed the finish line. Remember, sports car racing is a team effort. Sports car races tend to follow the widely accepted race weekend format found in nearly every type of racing, where drivers have a day or two to practice, followed by a qualifying session which sets the grid order for the eventual race. Formats can vary depending on series, but generally this is the case we've talked a lot about pro drivers and amateur drivers, but what's the difference? Because the sport generally includes so many drivers, the FIA have developed a system to keep them organized. Driver ratings are assigned to every properly licensed racing driver based on their age, wins, and racing history, even in non-sports car racing championships. The rating categories are as follows, bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. 
Bronze drivers are the least experienced, while platinum-rated drivers are the best of the best, and have typically won major sports car racing championships in the past. These ratings are updated yearly, and drivers have the chance to argue with the rating they've been assigned if they disagree with it. As a driver, your class rating can also determine what type of car you drive and what classes you're eligible to compete in. Every class has its own rating requirements for the drivers looking to contest a season in that class. Unless you have prior racing experience with a track record of success, everyone generally enters the sport with a bronze or silver driver rating depending on their age. Drivers can then advance up the ranks from there. The other important decision to make when discussing driver ratings is differentiating between professionals and amateurs. Professionals are drivers for whom racing is their whole career. It's what they eat, sleep, and breathe. Amateurs, by comparison, may be serious about racing, but tend to either be just beginning to establish their racing careers or are drivers who just race part-time. Many of these part-time drivers are referred to as gentlemen drivers. Gentlemen drivers usually pay for their race seats for personal enjoyment, rather than being paid by a team or manufacturer like professionals. The exact requirements for each rating can be complicated, and the decision is ultimately up to the FIA. But the important thing to keep in mind is that your level of professionalism and clout in the sport increases with your driver rating. Classes in sports car racing typically include driver rating requirements. Let's use the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship as an example. Top-level prototypes have no restrictions based on class whatsoever. This means that a driver of any rating can pilot a GTP car. That being said, the fact that this is the top class means you'll really only find gold or platinum rated drivers here. Only the best of the best for the top class. LMP2 is a different story. In the LMP2 class, teams are required to have a bronze driver in their lineup. This is because the class is intended to cater to both professionals and amateurs. It's what's known as a pro-am class. The GT classes use this ethos as well. Currently, the GTD Pro class is a professional only, or pro class. By comparison, the GTD class, which uses the exact same GT3 machinery, is a pro-am class, requiring a mix of professional and amateur drivers in its lineup. Many championships and series actively make an effort to support amateur drivers, specifically those with a bronze rating. This is done not only to help grow the sport, but also because bronze drivers tend to bring a lot of money into sports car racing. Since many of them are gentlemen drivers, their financial contributions to both the teams and their respective series and championships help keep the sport going. Plus, paying for a high-profile professional driver can get expensive, and some of the top all-pro categories have historically had a tendency to become a bit of a spending race, where team and manufacturer involvement tends to dwindle until the class or category dies. Some drivers are selected by major manufacturers to represent them by racing on the brand's behalf across major series and championships. These are what's known as factory drivers. Being selected as a factory driver is a major accomplishment for any sports car competitor, and something that only a select few ever achieve. After all, a brand like Ferrari saying that they think you are one of only a few people in the world that they want competing in their cars all around the world is a pretty big honor. One of the most common terms you'll hear both discussed and complained about is balance of performance, or BOP. As the name suggests, the BOP deals with balancing the performance of different cars from different manufacturers within the same class. This is done so that everybody can race as evenly as possible. The technical side of balancing performance can be very complicated, but some of the common adjustments you'll see are to overall horsepower or energy output, the angles of downforce or aerodynamic elements, 
car weight, and fuel capacity. For instance, the hypercar class in the WEC contains many different types of cars from different manufacturers. Even though these cars are built to the same technical regulations, some cars will still be faster than others. Let's say that, hypothetically, the Ferrari 499P is faster in a straight line than the Porsche 963, but the Porsche burns fuel more efficiently than the Ferrari. The FAA and the ACO, both of whom oversee the World Endurance Championship and set the balance of performance here, might allow Porsche to increase their overall power output by 7 horsepower in order to keep up on the straights. But they also may allow the Ferrari to carry slightly more fuel during the race to account for the difference in efficiency. Series and championship organizers have access to millions of data points from all of the cars in the field in order to try and create the most even balance of performance possible. Ideally, a fair BOP will adjust for these differences so that all cars in the same class can turn similar lap times and produce the best possible racing. This is especially important for endurance races, where the pace differential between two cars could result in split times of multiple laps by the end of a 12 or 24 hour contest. Because different circuits have different characteristics, some cars may be better suited to different rounds, meaning that the BOP is often adjusted multiple times per season. Balance of performance can often be a contentious topic for both teams and fans. A BOP could reduce the performance of the fastest car, who would likely not take kindly to the fact that its rivals have been given the opportunity to catch up. The important thing to keep in mind here is that while it may not always be perfect, the balance of performance is designed and intended to produce closer racing in a sport where the regulations allow for so much variation. By now, you've probably figured out that race distances can vary by series and championship. For instance, DTM races are sprint races, where the goal is for a single driver to drive a single car as fast as possible for a short amount of time without stopping. By comparison, the World Endurance Championship only hosts rounds that are six hours in length or longer, hence the endurance in the name. Races can either be timed or based on distance. Think the six hours of Fuji versus the thousand miles of Sebring. To help everyone keep track of just who is on track, organizing bodies will release an entry list prior to any event. The entry list is simply a list of the teams that are competing, the cars that have been entered, the car's number, and the drivers in each car. Entry lists are also of particular interest to journalists and fans, because the personnel in each car can change from race to race. Although teams usually stick with a consistent full-season driver lineup, this can change based on the driver's availability. It's very common for drivers to compete in multiple series or championships at the same time throughout a racing season. This brings us to pit stops. Pit stops are a crucial part of nearly every form of motorsport, and sports car racing is no exception. While some series and championships utilize a sprint format and don't mandate pit stops, most of them do. Some even regulate the amount of times a car must come into the pits during a race. While they may not feature the 20-plus personnel sub-two-second tire changes of Formula One, a pit stop in sports car racing could feature a new set of tires, a driver change, refueling the car, and changing a full set of brakes. Try doing that in your Formula One car. For driver safety and to maintain the integrity of multi-class driver lineups, drivers swap out with one another during the middle of the race. There's also a minimum and a maximum for the amount of time the drivers are allowed to stay in the car. The time a driver spends in the car between pit stops is known as a stint. 
Drivers frequently do double or even triple stints during races before swapping out for their teammate or a new set of tires. This swap can happen in mere seconds and requires precision and excellent coordination between drivers and pit crew. Teams drill all of these procedures religiously to save fractions of a second wherever possible. Some championships, like the WeatherTech Championship, repurpose the leader light system in the pits to serve as a stopwatch. This is not only helpful for fans and spectators to see how long each pit stop is, but it's also helpful to race officials to see if teams are following the various pit stop rules and regulations for the racing event they're competing in. Drivers may also come into the pits to serve penalties. Penalties are assessed for violating a rule during a race, and for doing something that the race stewards deem to be incorrect. Think of the race stewards as the judges for a race. Drivers may also come into the pits to serve penalties during a race. A penalty is assessed for violating a rule during the race, or for doing something that the race stewards deem to be incorrect. Think of race stewards as the judges for a race weekend. Penalties typically range in severity from a drive through penalty, where drivers have to come into pit lane and trundle along slowly before rejoining, to timed penalties in the pits, where you have to remain stationary in your pit stall for a certain amount of time before your team can start to work on the car. While these aren't the only penalties in the sport, all penalties are designed to set the offending team or driver back relative to the severity of the offense. In essence, the punishment should fit the crime. Race stewards also reserve the right to disqualify teams for more serious offenses and to amend race results after a race has ended. Okay, so you've made it to the track, endowed with the knowledge from this podcast series, and you're ready to follow some sports car racing action. Well, how the heck do you know who's winning when the top-level prototypes can lap slower GT traffic in as little as four to five laps? If you're watching the action at home or on TV, the leaderboard and graphics will help you tremendously. Plus, it's the job of the commentators to help you unpack what you're seeing on track and try to make sense of it all. Following the action can be a little trickier in person, but don't worry, most of the major series and championships have got you covered. If you look at the side of your favorite race car in the WeatherTech Championship or WEC, you'll notice that the car's race number and sponsorship aren't the only things on the car. There are LED panels on the side of the car, or three LED circles. These are used to help you decipher where a car is in relation to the rest of the field and its class. For instance, the World Endurance Championship uses three dots in accordance to the car's position in class as long as the car is running in the top three. For instance, if a car is leading an LMP2, you'll see just a single light illuminated on the side of the car. In IMSA, the LED panel on the car will display the numeric position of that car within its class. If the car is ninth in class, you'll see a number 9 lit up on the panel. On top of that, classes can be differentiated by colored accents on the car. While colors may vary by series or championship, it's become common practice in sports car racing to help both fans and teams follow the action better. You'll also be able to tell what's happening on track by the different flags you'll see around the circuit. You can really get an appreciation for this in person, as both track marshals and sometimes electronic lights around the track can tell teams and drivers what the current track conditions are. Most flags are fairly consistent across the motorsport world, but here are the basics. Green. This means go. Flat out. Send it. Yellow. Send it less. Caution. Be ready to stop for an incident on track. This can also occur in just one section of the track to keep the race going while exercising caution. A waved white flag. Be careful, there's a slow-moving car up ahead. Double yellow. Temporarily stop sending it. This generally neutralizes the whole field under a safety car. 
yellow with red stripes. This is for dangerous track conditions or for debris on track. Red flag. The session has been stopped or suspended until further notice. This is for serious incidents that require safety personnel to spend a longer time on track to alleviate the situation or make repairs. Blue flag. There's a faster class car behind you. Make way. Black with an orange dot or the meatball flag. This signifies that the driver it's shown to must come into the pits to repair a mechanical issue that presents a danger on track. If you're shown a black flag, you're disqualified. This is generally for breaking a major rule or committing a more serious offense. But the white flag shown on the start-finish straight signifies that it's the last lap, and the checkered flag means the race is over. Each series and championship tends to have its own slight variations on these generally accepted flags. For instance, the World Endurance Championship utilizes a virtual safety car, or VSC. This slows the field down without the need for a physical safety car to go out on track. Another variation is the Code 60, or a mandate that cars slow to 60 kilometers per hour, around 37 miles an hour, to avoid a hazard on track. At the end of the day, each series can use its own slight variations in order to slow down the field of cars so that whatever hazard is on track can be cleared safely and swiftly. You've probably heard us talk about a golden era of sports car racing. This is in reference to converged regulations between the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship and the World Endurance Championship, allowing the top-level prototype LMH and LMDH cars to compete in each championship interchangeably. This is fairly unheard of in the sport and has sparked a tremendous amount of manufacturer involvement, the likes of which haven't been seen in decades. In fact, the sport is having to make some pretty difficult decisions about what changes to make to potentially accommodate all of these teams and manufacturers that could potentially be on the grid in the future. Either way, the dawn of this new era has led to plenty of excitement and some fascinating cars in the world of sports car racing. And with that, we'll wave the checkered flag here as well. Well, there you have it, a crash course in sports car racing. I truly believe that there's no better way to experience sports car racing than live, in person, and at the racetrack. Wherever you live, there's an interesting series or championship near you. And now you have the tools and knowledge to follow one of the most exciting forms of racing out there. Tickets tend to be pretty affordable compared to other forms of racing, and they also generally offer fairly unrivaled fan access. General admission to an IMSA race gets you full panic access for the whole weekend, and the opportunity to walk on the grid before the race begins. This means that you can not only see the cars up close, but get to meet all of your favorite drivers. While prices and access can vary, similar fan perks can be found in the World Endurance Championship and in most SRO events as well. Sports car racing is in an incredible era of growth and excitement, and there's never been a better time to start following this amazing type of racing. If there are topics you want to learn more about, or if you found this series helpful, let us know. We want to make sure you have the tools and resources to follow and enjoy the sport as much as we do. This has been a Sports Car 365 podcast production. I've been your host, Jonathan Grace, and you've been listening to Sports Car 101. We'll see you at the track.